Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm really happy today to connect with Nate Manderson. I came across your work, Nate, in, I guess it was a salon. You've written a lot of articles for a salon. So welcome, Nate, to MindShift Podcast. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Clint. Yeah, I'm really excited because as we were hitting, before we hit record, we were chatting about uh, uh, some kind of funny, uh, ironic sort of our paths nearly crossed. It turns out you went to the same seminary that I was an intern at near the, in the Boston area a few years ago. So we could have almost, you know, crossed paths literally at Gordon Conwell up there in Hamilton, Massachusetts. Absolutely. We would have had coffee over at Starbucks and, and been talking about how to uh, interpret some of this Greek. That we would have. Yeah. <laughs> I was saying I was in, it was there. I was a, in preparation for doing my doctorate over here in the UK. And it was, it was helpful in that regard. But as you, as you said before we hit record, I mean, you probably disagree with a lot of their more conservative theology. I guess I didn't get too much into that because I was so focused on, you know, being an intern and trying to help Haddon Robinson there, who was the professor of homiletics and preaching and all that. So I didn't really get much into it. But it sounds like you had some issues with some of the real conservative students, but not so much the the teachers. Yeah, the the professors were clearly conservative. It's it's yeah. not everyone understands how conservative of a seminary that it is because I think they're not that loud about it. Uh, when you're near Boston and you're a conservative seminary, you don't promote it that much, <laughs> just mm -hmm. in case they start to notice because we're a very kind of secular and progressive area, of course, in Massachusetts. Um, but yeah, they're a very conservative seminary, and I I would push back against the professors, but they they were very thoughtful and measured, and I I never really found them to be upset by my liberal views, but my fellow classmates seemed to really get concerned, especially if I mentioned I might vote for Bill Clinton. They <laughs> thought maybe I had become an actual baby murderer. So uh, <laughs> yeah. so it, 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 was, uh, it was more problematic with them because I think when you're a young seminarian, sometimes any possibility from the other side is like a threat to their faith. And I was mm -hmm. just trying to have a discussion and they, they really struggled with even having a discussion about stuff like that. Yeah, I can imagine. It's funny because when I was at Gordon Conwell, even though I was only there three months, I suppose I, looking back on it now, I was in the process of deconstructing my faith because I'd come out of a, a really rough pastorate. I was the head pastor of a church in Portland, Oregon for about 11, 12 years. I was an elder and then I became the head pastor and I burned out. We had to close the church down. It was a lot of ugly church politics. So when I came to Gordon Conwell, I was burned out. I was burned on ministry. I didn't want to have anything to do with the church, but I was still okay with Christians. And I was, I, I think that's where you and I probably resonate is that I read a lot of your articles in Salon. I think, man, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I was exactly where you are now. Right. I think I read a lot of your stuff and it seems to be like wanting to have a, have a message for the church in America today that it's not necessarily a, a lost cause or something, you know? Is that, is that a fair assessment of kind of where you're coming from? Yeah. I mean, I think the reason I started to write articles like this, and it dates back, I don't know, almost 20 years when I first submitted some articles to a, a local area paper, South Coast uh, Times, I wanted to kind of preach to the public 
uh, the public that has been burnt out by the church, mm-hmm. uh, just as I was burnt out by the church when I was a pastor, and just as you were burnt out by a church as, as a pastor yourself, yeah. the, the, the public in America is definitely burnt out and has no desire to walk back in those doors. And I don't blame them. Uh, I think the church has given him plenty of reason to not attend church. Mm-hmm. And so there they are. God still cares and loves about and loves this public. And so I saw myself as a needed pastor to the public. And so that message is about the message that I try to follow of Christ, where Christ exposed the religious hypocrisy and reached out to the downtrodden. So I feel like when I'm writing these articles, I need to expose the religious hypocrisy, which mm-hmm. is clearly found in the evangelical movement, and reach out to the downtrodden. Yeah, it sounds like you've come close because one of your articles is something to the effect of, you know, not quite losing my religion. <laughs> you know, so you're... Exactly. I, I've been close, trust me, and, and more recently, <laughs> even closer. And yeah. uh, if, if about 20 years ago, uh, close as well. But it's, uh, it is, it's hard to hold on to your faith and you're trying to figure out, like, why would God give such a powerful voice to these people that are clearly in direct opposition to everything that Christ stood for? Uh, it is frustrating to watch and then to see the people follow these, uh, these shepherds is, uh, is really difficult. It's hard to watch. And I'm just reading your bio on Salon, you know, and I, I was struck again by how, how similar our backgrounds are. You, it says you were educated at a conservative seminary. So we know that was Gordon Conwell. You Correct. were trained as a minister. So I was too, I was also ordained, uh, through the Baptist church. So the difference is it says you were guided by liberal ideals. <laughs> So the difference is with me, I was raised in a fundamentalist church in the Seattle, Washington area, you know, but I've done loads of stuff that you've done. You know, I've been a camp counselor. I've been a pastor. I've been an advisor. I've been a teacher. You know, I've delivered papers. You know, I'm a construction worker. In fact, what I do now is I'm a a vocational teacher. I teach construction skills, you know, so that's what I've been doing for the last four or five years in a college type setting, you know, so it's a completely different career path, but we've done everything, I guess, you know, that we had to do, like you say, to take care of your family, you do what you have to do in addition to all these ministry things. Well, it's true. I mean, some of the things that didn't necessarily connect to ministry, but I do believe that the reason that you and I chose this other, like my daily path was always very about, very much about education and reaching uh, the students that I always worked with were first generation, low income. And it continues to be the case because you know, like Paul being in the tent maker, like we, we take our day, what we're supposed to do with our 40 hour work week. And we try to still serve. Uh, and I find a lot minute, a lot of my ministry is found in, in my service to these students that I've worked with the majority of my life. And then even in the construction or facility work that I've done, I feel like I'm supposed to lead by example and work hard and believe in hard work. So I still think it's ministry. It's just not, it just doesn't have the pastor thing next to it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in fact, when, even when I had the church, I remember very much feeling that I do more ministry in my daily job as a counselor or an academic advisor or a life coach than I would do when we were trying to decide like, all right, is it Patsy's turn to make the coleslaw for this Sunday's <laughs> dinner? Or is it Patsy's turn to make yeah. the coleslaw? And both thought it was their turn and it was really hard to resolve. And so oh, that yeah. didn't always feel like ministry. I <laughs> know. Uh, it, it seemed like when I was a pastor probably 80 or 90% of my work week was spent settling petty disputes and squabbles between the members, yeah. you know, and it was stuff like you're talking about. I remember one lady was all upset one time that there was a, an after, an after church event where they were supposed to be advertising their, 
you know, small groups in their homes. And one of the groups brought brownies and they didn't. And they were, that, that table was attracting more people. And she wanted me to, I don't know what she wanted me to do. I guess <laughs> kick them out of the church for bringing brownies. I mean, yeah, but that's the level of stuff we're talking about. I mean, <laughs> no, it's, you it, it, it's your muster and that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I teach in middle school right now in the inner city and uh, middle school kids. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of petty disputes between 12 year olds. Sure. And, uh, but the disputes that I was having between 80 year olds was not a whole lot different. They were clicks. <laughs> they were, they were back talking. And, and of course it would be under, always under the umbrella. Like we really need to pray for this woman's family because mm-hmm. have you heard the grandson's addicted to crack? And it's just like, okay, this is gossip. This is not about yeah, prayer. prayer with us. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's just, uh, they pastoring in, 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 uh, unless you're guests in the South and you have like a 5,000 person church. These old New England churches are probably in the Northwest. I assume it's similar. Uh, it's a lot of these kind of elders that are, I don't know. I don't know what's happening, but it's, it was a struggle for me and I had to step away uh, myself and I don't see myself returning to formal ministry anytime soon. Yeah, it's true. It's a different perspective, isn't it? Because the last job that I had, I just changed jobs in January, but the job I had before, I was a construction trainer, but I was able to teach military veterans over here in the UK. So I had, you know, British Army, Navy, Royal, Royal Air Force vets, a lot of men and women with PTSD and, you know, pr- some pretty severe mental health issues coming out of combat. A lot of them were Afghanistan vets and things like that, you know, and I felt the same way, even though I don't identify as a Christian anymore. I felt eerily, like you just said, that that is quote unquote ministry. It was more of a pastoral role. It wasn't so much about teaching them the actual construction skills, although that was clearly part of why they were, why, why they were there. But yet a lot of the stuff I did was mental health support for these men and women. And I thought, man, I've had a lot of training in this. Oh, the difference is I'm not bringing in any religious component. It's more of a, a secular, you know, support role. But I thought, man, <laughs> I've done this. I've been here. I've, you know, this is right. like being a pastor in so many ways. Clint, it's, it is remarkable to hear you say that it's, it's, uh, because it's so similar to my background, mm. my, my last position before I went back into teaching, I worked as a trainer. Um, for onboarding for uh, young people coming. Well, it wasn't just young. It was kind of all over the uh, spectrum of ages. And people were coming in and I was teaching them how to deal with facilities. And it was all about like how to find success. And I was training them both, you know, some had some experience with like a, holding a drill or holding a hammer and some yeah. zero. And I had to train them. And I created this thing we used to call a, my boot camp. And it was two weeks and, they, and I had to kind of put them through it. And we used to joke that not everyone makes it through boot camp. Yeah. And which was true because I would fire people if they didn't seem to have the professional or the work ethic that they needed to have. But it was all life skills, teaching them what it took to to put in their time and that hard work will matter here. And it was great. It was one of my favorite uh, experiences I've ever had in my life. But and I very much saw it as ministry, never mentioning my faith. uh, But it was all about uh, living the right way, working the right way, you know, putting in the effort and that effort being returned to you. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's similar to ministry, of course, but it just, I don't say, you know, Jesus is my savior and all that, but mm. it, I really did feel the connections that I made at that work at that job were, um, some of my favorite. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree. I think we found, uh, our ministry. It just doesn't happen to have a, a steeple. Exactly. Yeah. There's no, uh, we're not passing the plate or right. <laughs> those kind of squabbles. Well, I'm interested to talk about your articles because, like I said, what what hit me when I read through them, and that's why I contacted you in the first place, 
was to chat about all your work on Salon and other places because what what struck me is that you you're kind of like where I was about 10, 12 years ago. I first started this podcast and I did a lot of writing on this idea of kind of trying to get a message across to save the church. I was a teacher over here at a Bible college for about eight years up in Leeds and Liverpool. And that was my mission basically was to teach these men and women how to be, you know, pastors and leaders in the church without alienating the community. And I, I was really hopeful that I could get through to them, you know, but eventually I decided, well, no one's listening. <laughs> right. And I think, okay, I, I see a lot of that in your writing that you're still carrying that torch. You're still hopeful that there's going to be some kind of reconciliation that, yeah, I guess the liberal and the conservative sides might come together someday. And, you know, the Trump vote and everything has really messed everything up, hasn't it? For the witness of the church, I guess you could say. Yeah, it has. It, but it was always it was always coming. G'day, I'm Troy. And I'm Brian. And we're the hosts of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, an ex-evangelical podcast. We used to be loyal members and leaders in Australian Christian megachurches, but we're not anymore. I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist is an honest and hilarious peek behind the curtain at the weird, the worrying, and sometimes traumatic world of evangelicals and Pentecostal. We share our stories, we interview prominent guests in the global ex-evangelical space, and provide a platform for others to tell their stories about their time in evangelicalism and their journey out. Shortlisted at the recent Australian Podcast Awards, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist gives you a unique global perspective into one of the fastest growing religions in the world from the people who actually lived it. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com. You know, the moment that the evangelicals started to align themselves with the Reagan agenda in 1980, yeah. we were going to have a Trump. Like It was inevitable in a way, wasn't it? It really was. I mean, Trump probably sees himself as like this great singularity and, and this brilliant and all, you know, leader. And But he was just a product of his time. That's all he was. And he just happened to fit the bill of what the evangelicals had created starting back in 1980. And once it became the Republican agenda instead of the evangelical agenda, then everything was lost. I don't know if I see that it's possible to kind of bridge the gap between the liberals and the conservatives. I just know that there are millions of Americans who, who are people of faith and don't know how to resolve that faith as it relates to what's happening in the evangelical church. Like mm. we are, we are not our leaders, you know, and as much as the media would make it out to be as much as the most popular commentators would make it out to be, we are not our leaders. We, you know, we are that our leaders is like, you know, there's probably, you know, 30% maybe uh, of the people that vote for Trump truly believe he's like the second coming, mm -hmm. but the rest of them are voting them, voting for him because they're Republicans and they're always going to vote for the Republican and they just kind of hold their nose. But I don't know if I believe that things could change, but I know that it's the right message. And so I'm going to keep preaching it. Even if I know it's a losing battle, it's kind of like fighting city hall. You're going to lose, but mm -hmm. You know, it's it's worth the fight for me, but yeah, the evangelicals made they they made their bed, and and even now when they're starting to be resistant toward Trump, and not because they are resistant toward him morally, they actually don't seem to have a problem with him morally. They're more worried about winning elections, and mm -hmm. he has shown to be a three-time loser. He lost his election to Biden, yeah. he lost his first midterm, and he lost essentially the last midterm. And so they don't want anything to do with him because they think he's going to lose. But it's over. They already they already convinced the followers 
that this guy is sent by God to save America. So they're going to make him the Republican nominee again, for sure. But I, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting to watch what's going on right now, isn't it? Because you talked about in some of your articles, who the the guy they really want is DeSantis, isn't it? But they, they yes. may not be, they may not get him if they're Trump not going to get him. Yeah, if Trump can do, it's essentially a repeat of what he did in 2015, 2016, isn't it? He's a dark horse. Nobody thought he could win. It was a he was a laughing stock, really. And the Democrats even said, "Let's let's let's put him on the Republican platform because right. we guarantee the Hillary's going to beat him." And right. to all you know, shock and all horror, he won, and nobody knew what to do. You know, uh, and right. it's kind of happening again. It seems like, and the Republican Party is twisting itself in knots to to try to figure out what they're supposed to be doing right now. Right. And really, politically speaking, if we step outside of the religious piece, it seems like he can't win a national election. I think he mm -hmm. probably still can, but all the numbers say that he can't. And that's one of their biggest reasons is they don't want to have him out there because they think he'll lose. But he is still by far the favorite to win the nomination. But they did the same thing. Like you said, back in 2015, they really, I mean, CNN had, would have him on regularly for free. Yeah. I mean, he, they... They essentially made him president for all it's the liberals true. and the. There's a great hypocrisy kind of on the left. Yeah, it was free to listen to him. And how much? And not even this is this is my cynical nature, but how much money has CNN and MSNBC made during those Trump years? If you mm -hmm. said the word Trump, you got clicks on your article. If you said the word Trump, you had viewership. Like that was a big panic. I read an article recently, well, recently a couple years ago that. All of like kind of the big media giants were afraid of Trump losing both MSNBC group and Fox News because they knew the ratings would drop mm -hmm. enormously once he wasn't president. And they all cashed in on Trump uh, of the left and the right. So I get a little frustrated with my liberal media when they kind of act disgusted about Trump. And I think, well, you helped create him. Uh, <laughs> <created> the monster. <laughs> you know, you had him on your every interview show you could ever have because you knew the ratings that he produced. And I don't know. I get I I'm I'm a cynic by nature, and so I I'm not just yeah. critical of the church. I get critical of everyone, Clint. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like Lisa Simpson's famous quote. She said, "You can't create a monster and then be upset when it knocks over a few buildings." <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I mean, exactly. Exactly. Well, and everyone was dirty back then. They all participated yeah. in making that monster. Yeah, and as you said, going back to your point earlier, you were making about the evangelical jumping in bed with Ronald Reagan after they kind of turned their backs on Jimmy Carter, who was a legitimate evangelical. He really was a true evangelical, wasn't he? But he ended up being more liberal, I guess, than they than they thought he was going to be, and they turned on him and, and jumped in bed with Reagan. And it seems like, to me, this is the piece that I've studied a lot, is the dominion theology aspect of it. How much of you studied that sort of part of it when it comes to the Christian right, and then how you talk about what Christianity in America has become as a result of those shifts. Well, I'm going to give you a kind of a, a couple, a longer answer. Mm -hmm. Dominion, I don't know as much about, but I do, I do know, I believe that in, of course, Jimmy Carter being in the news right now and, yeah. and what a, what a, what a, probably the greatest ex-president who's ever, who's ever lived. So I think one of the, the panic in the evangelical movement in the seventies was that the Christian vote had been taken essentially in the 60s by the civil rights movement and Dr. King, that you aligned your your thoughts as a Christian with the Democratic Party, right? Or with liberal ideas. And then Jimmy Carter was the Sunday school president 
so even more so. And they didn't want to do with any social justice, any of that stuff. And so their resistance was to Jimmy Carter's type of theology and was certainly to the black church, which they still don't really respect. Mm-hmm. And so they threw their their whole thing behind Republican idealism and, and Reagan and then W. Bush and then, of course, Trump even more so. And so that whole buildup uh, was, was occurring way back. And then the Dominion, I'm not as I'm, I'm not as uh, familiar with. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you uh, expand on that? Well, as, yeah, I've done a lot of research on it. It's, it. A lot of it relates to R.J. Rush Dooney and Christian Reconstructionism. I don't know oh, if okay. you're familiar yeah, with that I'm... movement. But basically, yeah, as I understand it, Rush Dooney had already written a lot of stuff way before this, back in the 60s and early 70s, on taking Dominion and things like that. So the, the scaffolding was there. And mm. then when the Christian right sort of came along in the late 1970s, early 1980s, they were looking for a, a theological and, and biblical scaffolding to base their argument on politically. And they, they found Rush Dooney. And it was like, wow, here's here's a template for taking dominion in in, polit- in the political sector. Now, the problem was this Rush Dooney stuff was quite objectionable. Some of his more extreme views, like, you know, the, the literal application of Old Testament law in society, stoning of gays and incorrigible teens and things like that, they found that to be too extreme. So they didn't really want to admit that they had, you know, taken him on board. So, but they used his sort of dominion theology aspect of it to form that scaffolding of the early Christian right. And then I think what, what you talk about is, you know, based on that sort of move, that shift in the 70s and 80s, it's, it's turned Christianity or the Christian right, I guess you could say, as you say, it's they, they preach a hateful agenda based on self-righteousness, arrogance, and judgment. I mean, you know, I could, there's a great quote that you've got in this article about, you know, this is the, this is the legacy of that move. And now they're having to deal with it. Right. Well, I always found it kind of interesting. You know, the Bible is a pretty big book and mm. there's a lot in there. Then yeah. when you looked at America and any issues that you found in America, they could only find two issues, one around gay marriage or the gay lifestyle and the other around abortion. Mm-hmm. And it was remarkably not about them because typically these evangelicals were white, heterosexual men uh, who were not going to have abortions and uh, at least uh, uh, publicly not gay. Although some of them we have found that they may yeah. have been. Well, they were in the closet. <laughs> yeah, right. And so... How is it possible that in the entire Bible, they find two pieces of an agenda to talk about publicly for 50 years, and those two agenda items have nothing to do with them? Mm-hmm. That seems pretty like uh, uh, convenient, uh, as if like somehow there's nothing in the Bible about greed. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible about pride. There's nothing in the Bible about welcoming the foreigner or healing the sick. I mean, the entire scripture ha- almost has to be ignored. The abortion item is even more difficult because mm-hmm. there's actually nothing in the Bible about it. And then the the homosexuality thing, if you want to try to follow it, it's written like three times in the whole book. And it's, like I said, massive. Mm-hmm. If you want to apply that, then we need to start chopping hands off for people that have <laughs> yeah. stolen. We need to start killing, exactly. stoning people for, you know, they have, you know, your, my shirt's not 100% cotton that I'm wearing. I need to, I need that to be thrown away. Like you can't, if you want to apply the law the same way they are, we're in a lot of trouble, um, yeah. you know, and so they're, they're, they've, they found issues that were political winners. I don't even know if they really even believe in what they're doing. 
Yeah. I, I just know they want to be in power and these are ways to stay in power and rally the people. Mm -hmm. And as we know, yeah, there's been a lot of research done, guys like Randall Balmer, uh, Frank Schaefer. I don't know if you've read any of Frank's Frank Schaefer, yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, I've had him on the show a couple of times and we talked about his book Crazy for God and things like that. And we know now, of course, that as you point out, the the whole thing about abortion was a, a kind of a cynical tactic on the part of guys like Paul Weirich and others to to motivate a huge sort of a sleeping base of Christians. These were the people that were, you know, followers of Jerry Falwell on his radio show and things like that. And he went to Falwell and said, look, we can, we need to, you know, motivate that base. We got to right. get them motivated. They didn't care about desegregation of schools. They weren't right. upset about that. It was abortion. That was the thing that could motivate all these evangelicals out there that never really voted before, you know? So the whole thing has a backstory to it. It wasn't even about abortion to begin with. It was just a, a ploy to get them motivated to vote. Right. Even uh, I, I had mentioned this, so I was talking to someone else, and that James Dobson at the time was actually quoted, uh, you know, founder of the 700 Club, you know, obviously a, a huge evangelical leader in America. Oh, yeah. and, and he was quoted at the time that saying, to saying that the Bible was silent on the abortion issue mm -hmm. because they didn't realize, this is obviously mid-70s, early 70s, they didn't realize it was a political juggernaut, that this was a winner. This was how mm -hmm. you motivate votes. It was only when they realized you could motivate people behind this idea that we're murdering children, then people were, were there. And uh, it's it's been an interesting thing to see the law change and to see you know how they can still rally the people around it. But clearly, they found something that lit a fuse underneath the evangelical oh, movement. But it had nothing to do with the Bible. It had nothing to do with Christianity, Jesus Christ. Or yeah. anything, it just had anything, everything to do with getting a seat at the table of power. Yeah, and and as we can see, the strategy worked because right, you know, forty, fifty years ago, the strategy was we need to elect a president who will support our causes, who will also appoint conservative Supreme Court justices and as well as judges on lower benches, and that's exactly what Trump did for him. You know, by by appointing the last three Supreme Court justices. That was when they made their moves, but it was a long time coming. When we come back from the break, we're going to get back into the second half of this chat with Nate or Nathaniel Manderson. Really good conversation. He's this pastor to the public, writing articles in Salon and in other places, talking about his views on what's happening in the church. And I, I do resonate with what Nate is talking about, as I said at the beginning of the show. I can see where he's coming from for sure. I'm not necessarily there myself, but I do want to have Nate come back. We're going to have someone else come back in April for our MindShift Zoom call. I'll talk about that more in a minute, but I think maybe we'll see if we can get him back in May. So if you want to meet up with Nate, you can do that, and I'll tell you how you can do that in a minute. I just wanted to mention what's going to come up here in the next few episodes here on the show. I've been in touch with my good friend Chris Shelton. In fact, I was on his show it's going to come out probably in a few more weeks. We had a really good conversation all about my research into controversial pastors slash cult leader Doug Wilson out of Moscow, Idaho, and then we got into a whole lot of other stuff. So that's coming out on his show. Then I wanted to turn around and return the favor. So I'm going to be talking to Chris here next week as I'm doing this recording now. So that episode is going to come up just after this one drops with Nate Manderson. And then I've been getting requests from people to do another episode on Doug Wilson, Southern Slavery, as it was. In fact, I got an, an email or a message the other day from someone on my public Facebook page. She actually lives in Moscow, Idaho. Her name's Ginger Rankin. 
and she's very much into the local scene there. And of course, that includes controversial stuff that Doug Wilson has done over the decades. So we've been messaging back and forth and we've been talking to people like her about doing this episode. So as I get time, I'm going to start working on an episode doing this thing on Southern slavery as it was specifically focusing on the book and sort of the backstory behind it. There's a lot to it really when you get into it, and it's quite a disturbing story, very racist, sort of revisionist view of history, accusations of plagiarism and so on and so forth. And he's never ever, as far as I can tell, retracted his statement or you know, said his thesis was incorrect or wrong. So we'll talk about that on that episode, as I say, when I get a bit more time. I've also been in chat with Venny Koshis. She's a former cult survivor. So we're going to be talking again. I've got that scheduled booked in. So that's coming up soon here and uh, probably after the one with Chris Shelton. And I've also been in conversations with Elgin Strait. He's another ex-cult member, ex-Mooney. He's an ex-pat like myself. He lives over here in the UK. He lives in London. So we're going to be doing something end of April, early May. So we've got some cult stuff coming up. We've got an ex-Scientologist, ex-cultist, ex-Mooney coming up here in the next few weeks. And then, as I said, I'm going to work on getting that episode together on Doug Wilson's book, Southern Slavery, as it was. I mentioned at the top of the uh, little break here that you can get a chance to be on our MindShift Zoom calls. In fact, we just had one the other week as I'm doing this recording. We had Sam Terode, and he was it was an absolutely fantastic conversation. I'm going to put that up on Patreon. If you want to watch that video, you have to be a subscriber to Patreon to get access to that video. But then we've got next month, we've got Chris Shelton. And as I say, I'm going to try to have Nate come back in the month of May. So how can you be part of those calls? Well, you can support the show on Patreon. That gives you exclusive access, not only to early content, but also those MindShift Zoom calls that we hold every month around about the third Sunday of the month. And it also gives you access to our closed MindShift Podcast Facebook group. You can also just donate to the show. If you don't want to be a Patreon supporter of the show, you can go to my website, mindshiftpodcast.co.uk. And there's a PayPal button you can click there. If you just want to donate to the show, just do a one-off thing. I really appreciate that as well. So let's get on back into the second half of our conversation with Nate Manderson, the pastor to the public. I mean, this was decades in the making. I mean, to what extent, too, is the Christian nationalist piece in there because, you know, I read a lot of stuff by David Barton. I don't know if you're familiar yep. with this, you know, sure. all builders and all that. And his whole thing is, you know, America was a Christian nation. We need to become one again. And abortion and homosexuality are the two major sins, corporate sins right. that are stopping America from becoming a Christian nation again. So there's that piece as well. I mean, to what extent is the Christian nationalist uh, element in this as well? Yeah, that is a, a, an interesting thing. Why why they're they're so upset by the idea that somehow they think that maybe Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin might not have been a Christian, or <laughs> or that somehow the whole Constitution is built upon Christianity or the foundations of of the Christian faith. I, I'm not saying there's not a Christian influence within within the founding of our country. Of course there is, but like murder, like we all knew murder was probably a bad idea. You know, mm-hmm. we knew that stealing is a bad idea. These were not new ideas that only was found within the Christian faith. Uh, our constitution about having like equal opportunity to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that is not necessarily only found in the Christian faith. So uh, this idea that we have to get back to this, and if we ignore this, uh, my favorite about this is that once we have ignored the Christian values, then God has somehow will take off his protective shield and our America is going mm-hmm. to be destroyed. 
And in fact, after 9-11, that was the message that we were attacked. Falwell Sr. said it, that we were attacked essentially because we have allowed gays to get married and that God lifted his layer of protection and now our America is going to start falling apart. This is the first time that we've been attacked on our soil. First time, and by far, the worst results. And I fear, as Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, said yesterday, that this is only the beginning, and with biological warfare available to these monsters, the Husseins, the Bin Ladens, the, uh, the, the Arafats, uh, what we saw on Tuesday, as terrible as it is, could be minuscule if, in fact, if in fact God continues to lift the curtain and allow the enemies of America to give us probably what we deserve. Jerry, that's my feeling. I think we've just seen the antechamber to terror. We haven't begun to see what they can do to the major population. I mean, the ACLU, uh, the ACLU's got to take a lot of blame for this. And I know I'll hear from them for this, but uh, throwing God off successfully with the help of the federal court system, throwing God out of the public square, out of the schools, uh, the abortionists have got to bear some burden for this because uh, God will not be balked and will we destroy 40 million little innocent babies. We make God mad. I, I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who tried to secularize America, I point the thing in their face and say, you helped this happen. Well, I, I totally concur. You know, it wasn't a problem when we, like, owned slaves or wouldn't let women vote or people that didn't own property vote. Those weren't the problems. Yeah. But when we let two gay two guys get married, then America's going to get, we're going to collapse as a country you know, and a society. You know, all those other things, they were bad, sure, but not as bad as two men getting married and, uh, and raising and having a loving family. Somehow that, that was the, uh, that was the big one. That's how, that's when God truly got frustrated with us. It's really mind blowing to watch so many people buy in to such a, a illogical theology. And, yeah. Uh, it, they really, I, they are saying that most people are more biblically illiterate now within the church than mm-hmm. ever before. And so they're just relying on these pastors uh, yeah. to, to, and they just believe everything they say around the Bible, but they're really not preaching the the whole scripture. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, to what extent is, was, was Donald Trump figuring into that? That's why I go back to the dominion theology piece. Cause as I, the way I interpreted it was that evangelical, that 80% evangelical vote, both in 2016 and 2020, they were primed to accept someone that was going to help them achieve that dominion. And to, to a large extent, they did. But now um, he's trying to run again. And you, you have a couple of articles where you talk about, you know, they, they still love Trump, no matter what the pollsters say, no matter what the GOP might say. You know, if he beats DeSantis and gets the Republican nomination, they're just going to fall in line. And these pastors, like you said, they, they spent years promoting Trump. And now they're trying to walk back a little bit, but if if he gets the the nod, they're going to just fall back in line too, surely. Yeah, I mean Jeffers, even Robert Jeffers, kind of the most famous pastor that mm-hmm. is connected to uh, to Donald Trump. I mean, he even admitted it that he just said that you know I like everything Trump did. I just think yeah. we're ready. You know, I'm going to wait to see how it plays out, which is <laughs> no, not which is cowardly number one, Classic. and but but number two, he's clearly leaving it open for the possibility 
of Trump being uh, being the nominee, and then he can throw his full support behind him. And no, he they have created a monster in this. And when it comes to those primaries, when it starts in Iowa and it starts to continue throughout the country, the problem is these Republican leaders who do not want Trump or even the evangelical leaders, they only get to vote once. As I said in one of my articles, the base is still going to overwhelmingly support Trump. Mm-hmm. He still has that political magic. Um, he's, you know, like they think, well, Herschel Walker didn't win, but Herschel Walker was, I mean, the guy, he almost won and, the so guy was like, and he was a criminal. Yeah. Like, the man, the man yeah. threatened like every girlfriend he ever had in his life. He like physically threatened her, and he still almost won. Mm-hmm. So that shows there's a lot of power still behind Trump. And so when it's actually Trump, you know, and Trump does have something on that stage, he connects to his people in a way that a lot of politicians wish they had. And once he really starts running, I think it, I think he's going to run away with it. And so we'll see what whether he can rally the people. I don't know what the Democrats are going to do. Biden is clearly susceptible to. To certain things, sure, uh, it has some political weaknesses when it when it comes to running for president. Uh, so it it'll be uh, it'll be a tough time. I'm hoping that Trump can't win again, but mm. I do think he has that domination in his pocket. And then yes, the evangelical leaders are going to line up behind him. Yeah, uh, the people. I mean, it's not just that they believe in Trump; they truly believe he was sent by God to yeah. help save the country. You don't just stop thinking that because he says something offensive. The man opened his his whole campaign being offensive. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he yeah, the whole Mexican, Mexican rapist. Thing, yeah. The Mexican rapist thing. Like that shows some are good people. I assume, you know, some of them are okay. And, and, and of all things for the evangelicals to support a man like that, who demonizes the foreigner, when you're a Christian, the whole Bible is about welcoming the foreigner. And for us to then support a man that his entire agenda was to reject the foreigner and to keep them out because they're dangerous and they have diseases could not be more antithetical to what it means to be a, a Christian, a follower mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ. And so once that happened, you knew it was over. And once the people believed in that, you're not going to get them to not believe in that. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've got the Christian nationalist piece, the dominion angle, uh, these ab- abortion, homosexuality, whatever the drivers are. I like one of your articles because you, you know, you talk about uh, it came out in 2022. Do right-wing evangelicals really want a Christian nation? You say, hell no. And right. I like that you, you go through kind of point by point. If this is a theocracy, if this is really what we're going to be living in, what does it look like? We don't want it. In fact, they don't even want it. And I like the way you conclude the article. You say, quote, but a Christian nation is not what these evangelical Republicans want. They, and especially their leaders, seek power, money, and vengeance against anyone that stands in their way. If America's current health care system is killing people, then fine. If the justice system condemns the poor to prison and lets the rich walk free, then fine. If poor neighborhoods are plagued with violence and become traps nearly impossible to escape, then fine. These so-called Christians have no interest in equality of opportunity, healing the sick, and welcoming the foreigner, or in serving the poor. In other words, you say... Yeah. That was one last sentence. While conservative evangelicals may claim to want a Christian nation, they will do nothing to make that a reality. It's the last thing they want, you say. So it's actually, it's, it's antithetical to what they're actually talking about. Cult Hackers is a podcast about cracking systems of control to understand what cults are, how they work, how people leave, and how they make sense of the world after leaving. Cult Hackers come in many forms. They're the people who leave coercive groups, they're the researchers, the academics, the therapists, the writers, the artists, 
and the activists who hold these groups to account. They're also people who are really interested in cults and how they work. I'm Celine, a media graduate with a personal interest in cults. And I'm Celine's dad, Stephen, a former member of a cult and now an organisational psychologist who, amongst other things, researches cults and cultic systems of control. So subscribe to Cult Hackers today on your favourite podcast app. I, it, yes, and uh, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that I find to be problematic in politics, actually from the left and the right, is typically people like to pick issues that they feel are winnable. Mm-hmm. And, and not, you know, winning the abortion fight is so like, them them getting the Roe v. Wade to be overturned was always a winnable fight, something that seemed achievable, something that was measurable, something that when it happened, you could have this big celebration and all this. Winning the fight for equality of opportunity is a fight that almost will never be achieved, but is worth the fight. So to fight for equal of, equality of opportunity in our justice system, and that's a hard fight. And not yeah. as easy to kind of say, look, we did it. Like, because we're not going to get to the look, we did it. The equality of opportunity in our education system and our healthcare system, man, these are really hard fights. And you have to attack a structure that has a lot of money and power. And to do that, it puts you out of the fray. You don't get to sit at the power table anymore. Mm -hmm. You don't get invited to the White House anymore when you're condemning a healthcare industry, when you're condemning the food industry, when you're condemning, you know, the educational system that is clearly favoring those that are living in wealthier neighborhoods or condemning a justice system that clearly favors the wealthy, like you're not going to get invited to the state of the union. You're not Mm -hmm. going to, you don't get to have that. You are on the outside and of the structures and trying to condemn the structure that is oppressing people. Uh, And they don't want that. It is too hard of a fight. It's too complicated of a fight, too nuanced of a fight. They don't even have the answers and they're not, they don't want the answers because they have a winnable fight. The abortion thing was winnable. And then mm-hmm. they can tell everyone, look, if you give us, you know, donations and, and we and I get to fly a private jet, I'm going to be able to change this law. And it worked. And so now they can kind of, you know, sit in their victory. But it's a it's not a victory for Christ. It mm-hmm. was a victory for them. It was a victory for the Republicans and a victory for these evangelical leaders. But it was certainly not a victory for the people that even follow these evangelicals which is why I think we can get through to them mm-hmm. if we talk about working class issues, if we can focus on the people that go to these churches are working class and have been ignored by the Republican Party and, and to some extent the Democratic Party. And if we talk about blue collar working class issues, I think we can reach them. But we're, you know, this, it, we're not going to get anywhere listening to these evangelical leaders. That's for darn sure. But the thing is, is it may not be so simple to to reconcile because I came across another interesting article on the baptistnews.com site and he actually read one of your articles and then he responded to that. It's a guy named David Gishi and uh, it was a couple of years ago that he wrote this article about Christianity and politics and he he mentions a book, George Yancey and Ashley Kwozik. They wrote a book called One Faith No Longer, The Transformation of Christianity in Red and Blue America and the claim of the book, he says, is that Christianity in America is undergoing a left-right split so profound as to create two separate religions. They're both called Christianity, but they have nothing in common anymore. You know, one side is more ideological and social justice. The other the other side is all about theology, the right, you know, so there may not be a way to reconcile Christianity anymore 
it is like almost two religions. This is the the claim of the book anyway. Well, you know, it's interesting. Historically speaking, you're right. So maybe there isn't a way to, to cross that bridge. But, mm-hmm. you know, when when I, I kind of got into a place where I was really studying the Civil Civil War times and Frederick Douglass, runaway slave, abolitionist, yeah. and, you know, so much of what was enslaving the slaves was built upon a theology, a Christian theology. Oh, yeah. And so much of what freed the slaves was built on a Christian theology. <laughs> exactly. Abolitionists. <laughs> right. Those were ministers. They, you know, the, the, the Underground Railroad almost always involved in a church. Almost all of the political meetings to keep slavery in place were met in church. And so there is there a, there was a huge divide, obviously, at that time as well. And so uh, I, I'm sure that that is the case nowadays, which is why you need those abolitionists. You need the left to pull back and to try to balance it. It's, it's why sometimes you need you know, the liberal thoughts and the conservative thoughts, even if some of the liberal gets too extreme on the left. Republicans clearly get too extreme on the right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some kind of balance. Like there always has to be some of us out there saying, wait, wait, that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith frees the slaves, doesn't enslave the slaves. And so if we can, uh, we have to keep fighting because every generation needs that. Every generation needs to kind of someone to say, can we actually look at the ministry of Christ? Can we look at what Jesus said? And, um, you know, uh, you know, that's our generation now. Someone has to be out there. Uh, supporting the Bernie Sanders and, and mm-hmm. supporting those that are the more progressive, the more progressive thought. But I don't buy into everything come, that comes out of the progressive party. But no. I do love Bernie. There's been two things as we're doing this recording now. There's been two kind of events just in the last few weeks. One was the "He Gets Us" campaign. Right, I'm sure you've you've read all the articles about it. They yeah. they were showing these uh, commercials and adverts on during the Super Bowl and everything. And right. then the other one is the Asbury revival up in Kentucky. And yes. both of them struck me as, I mean, the He Gets Us campaign was clearly, a, it was a billion dollar campaign right. uh, funded in part by the Greens who own Hobby Lobby. So there's a whole backstory. Right. There, what, who's right. paying for this and what's it all about? But yet it was, it was to me, an effort to soften the image of what Christianity has become, what you talk about in your articles showing Jesus as being on the side of the immigrants coming from South America and Mexico and the inner city and you know the poor and people like that. And then you've got this Asbury re- revival, which was all over the news, you know, and it was like a Gen Z thing, you know, it was a cool right. move of God and wow, Christianity is really on the move and God's moving. And, you know, both of them could have been seen as a more of a cynical attempt to rehabilitate the image of what Christianity has become. Yeah, I, I think uh, Jesus has certainly taken a bad rap. I think all those photo ops with Donald Trump really hurt in the image of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so this was clearly, uh, uh, you know, a move, especially on the He Gets Us, Jesus Gets Us uh, campaign. And of course, they have tried to remove any possibility of connection to any political agenda. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously done on purpose. But anyone that's watching, anyone that has any education in this area clearly can, can see the evangelical influence on these commercials. Sure. Um, what's fascinating is that they have talked about him being a refugee. And then I think, well, how can you talk about Christ being a refugee when you throw all our refugees exactly. in cages? Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I was talking to my daughter, I have a younger daughter, I have two daughters, 18 and 16. And I was talking to my youngest, talking about some of these political stuff. And, and I said, you know, I, I just don't respect a person that doesn't choose a side. I want people need to choose sides, and those 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 advertisements 
they're pretending that they haven't chosen a side when they clearly have. Mm-hmm. So just come out and say what side you're on, and stop and stop being on the on the outskirts. We know exactly what you are, and you, and I've been trying to write something about it. To be honest, about the he gets us campaign, is that I also think it's kind of against the Christian faith. We're not supposed to align ourselves with other advertisers. So we're going to put our advertisement for Jesus next to a cell phone coverage that pretends to be better than the next cell phone company, mm, yeah. a health insurance company that pretends to care about their patients, uh, a beer commercial that pretends happiness exists in the bottom of a beer, and a, a truck commercial that tells you that the achievement of the American dream is driving a pickup truck. And that, you know, if if you love Jesus, it's all this really loving environment. But it, it simply isn't. The church has has lost the American people, and they rightfully so. And my thing is, over the last 50, 60 years, the church has become louder politically and culturally. And every decade we do, the more people don't come to our church. So mm-hmm. I do have a response. I think it's time to stop talking about what great Christians you are and start doing things that are Christian, like supporting agenda that heals the sick, promotes equality of opportunity, equality in our justice system, our education system. That's where we can, you wouldn't win people back. You got to do things the right way. You can't just mm-hmm. say Christ is this great thing. You got to be great. And these people aren't great. Um, so that's my, mm. that's my even more cynical approach. Yeah. Well, what Asbury you think, thing, what yeah. you think about the Asbury thing then? Yeah. Well, you know, you grew up in, in these kind of environments, I bet. I'm sure oh, yeah. you went to like a, you ever do like these summer camps where they, you know, there's these kind of big moments of call to the altar and people yep. are crying and you ask God in, back into your heart after yep. three other times because maybe you feel like the last time really didn't get you into heaven and they made you feel like such a sinner that sure. they, Yeah, I better make sure I get down there and yeah. confess my sins one more time. <laughs> so, you know, the emotion of that kind of moment and feeling, I mean, the Christians are looking for this. I mean, there was that, I mean, the born again kind of thing that was happening in the 70s. You know, at my time, you know, in the 90s, we were wearing WWJD bracelets mm-hmm. and, and this kind of idea that, you know, constantly always, you know, what would Jesus do? And I just think it's college kids and, and this idea that somehow America is lost. America is, by the way, usually lost when a Democrat is president, uh, <laughs> somehow yeah. is not lost when a Republican is president. So right now, mm-hmm. clearly America is lost. Our culture is lost. And so they're just tapping into the emotion that 19-year-olds can have. Uh, I don't see it as a revival. All it's going to do is get more people to to be uh, that are already believers to kind of get maybe more motivated. And I do think it'll there'll be some political results as uh, when it comes to this, and because it'll obviously uh, be anti-Biden eventually once you get mm-hmm. to underneath all the surface of this emotional thing. I mean, I was caught up in that when I was a kid, when I was eighteen or or fourteen, going to the, being surrounded by people telling me that you know there's an evil culture, and of course Clinton was evil then. That was a Democratic yep. president, so there was a big campaign and a lot of revival back then as well. And that was maybe underneath maybe a vineyard church or some of these other type of denominations that seemed a little more willing to embrace the the younger generation. And um, so I think that's just happening again. But it's it's in the end, it will connect to politics. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a way to kind of to connect to these young to the younger generation that they were afraid that they would lose, but they're not going to lose them, uh, mm-hmm. at least the portions of them that they that they were that they need. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, actually, I'm going to say one more point right in our local area. We both attended Gordon Conwell seminary, Gordon mm-hmm. college, which is in our, right next to it. Uh-huh. Um, they made big news by speaking out against Obama and sending a big oh. letter to him and not a supporting a gay student group on campus. And 
But the thing is, is a lot of these kids that are 19 have grown up around their, their friends are gay. Sure. So it's not like in, like when I came out of high school, no one came out, no one was gay yet. No one came out as gay yet. That happened in college. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it didn't happen publicly, but now your best friend might be gay and it's hard to condemn them. So they do, they are afraid they're going to lose that next generation because they, most of them, 19 year olds don't really give a crap about yeah. someone's uh, alternative lifestyle. Yeah. So, True. so I think that's some of it trying to make, maybe capture that younger generation. Mm. Yeah, they're doing their best to kind of win them back into the fold, I think. And I, I look at that Asbury thing a bit, bit more cynically, too. I think, Matt, you know, they're, they're, it's all led by Gen Z people, and that, that was what they were really trumpeting. I guess it's over now, as we're doing this recording. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. presidents and... Revival's over. Shut it down. Yeah. <laughs> Revival's over. Yeah, right. Uh, how ironic. Well, listen, uh, it's getting close to the end of the hour. I've really enjoyed chatting with you, and we, we definitely need to keep in touch. Um. How can people find you on social media? Obviously, you've got your articles on Salon. You can look up those loads of articles. How can people find you on social media then? Clint, to be honest, I have to have, I'm having a, a debate with myself about getting it. I'm off social media. I have thought about right. having a Twitter account. So yeah, you can find my articles on uh, Salon, Nathaniel uh, Manderson, Reverend Nathaniel Manderson. Uh, my email's there. Uh, people could email me. Uh, that's how you found me. That's how uh, at, at at the bottom of the articles, and maybe I'll look to kind of get more connected to uh, at least maybe one of these social media accounts. Sometimes the social media drives me insane, so mm. I've kind of uh, enjoyed not being un involved. But I think it's time to kind of get myself back out there. So if there is, I'll let I'll send a note to you okay. that I I've opened a Twitter account. The other thing too, before I let you go, uh, we need to talk about this too. I was going to invite you to come back. Maybe in April, if you're available, we do a monthly MindShift Zoom call where it's a group call. People from our Patreon supporters uh, are able to drop in and meet you. So if you're interested in coming back in another couple of months, I'd love to have you come in as a guest for our MindShift Zoom call. So I'll, I'll hit you up on email and we can maybe talk about that. Absolutely, Clint. I'm there. I've enjoyed this conversation quite a bit. Yep. No problem, Nate. Thank you. And I will speak to you again. We'll set up something for maybe another couple of months. All right, thank you, Quinn. Okay, God bless. Thank you. Thank you, Sam.